This is the Talk Theater in Chicago interview podcast. I'm your host this week, Anne Nicholson-Weber. This week we are bringing you part two of our interview with artistic director Jessica Hutchinson, managing director Eleanor Hyde, resident scenic designer Michelle Lilly, and resident sound designer Nick Keenan, all of the recently defunct New Leaf Theater. They joined me last week to talk about the history of the company and the culture, and this week we're going to continue the conversation, um, starting right in the middle, um, with their explanation of why the ensemble decided to disband at the run of their very uh, successful, most recent show, um, Tom Stoppard's Arcadia, and the lessons that they've learned from the experience that may be helpful to other small theater companies in the city of Chicago. So we'll dive right into the middle of the interview where that part of the discussion begins. Mm -hmm. Well, I, I have to just observe that in general, when things end, there's some bitterness and acrimony in general to bring mm -hmm. together four people who were involved in an ongoing enterprise that has now ended. Mm -hmm. Now, you didn't, quote, fail. You made a choice. Yes. But still, I think it it's perhaps indicative of the type of group you were, that you can all be here and have a shared story about what happened. Mm -hmm. So so if you're, then let's go to what happened, what, you know, what's the end story? And maybe Jess will just let you take that for now. Um, I, I, Eleanor, what Eleanor said about it being a very long and difficult discussion um, is absolutely true. Uh, and I think as well it should have been um, because... Um, to, I, I, I can only speak for, I can really only speak for myself, but I will venture for a moment to speak for the seven of us, um, that this was an incredibly important part of all of our lives. Mm -hmm. Um, to speak just for myself, I, I am, um, the artist that I am because of these people and um that's important and that needs um that deserves care and deliberateness um and it deserves to end the way we mean it to end and not um accidentally mm -hmm. uh the the it it became started to become clear um that these limitations, not artistic really, but the limitations of time and, um, an ability to, to grow the institution, uh, and the, the sacrifice that would have had to be made of the art in order to do that with the finite time resources that the seven of us had, um, that wasn't a sacrifice I think we were willing to make ultimately, um, because, there was something about the way we made that art for the seven of us. And I'm so pleased that so many audience members connected with it as well, because if we don't have those people, then, you know, what are we doing? Right. But I think um, this part of the story is about the seven of us and the, and the relationship that we all had to each other and the work. And so when it started to, to become um, difficultly clear uh, that what the seven of us needed to continue having that 
renewal and continue having that positive experience of making this art together and what the company needed as an institution to continue and sustain were different. Mm-hmm. Um, we had to, first we had to say that out loud, which sucked. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and was, um, it was awful. It was so awful <laughs> because how can you take this thing you love that is, um, ostensibly getting better and better, yeah, right? right? And look at it and say, I can't have you anymore. And you can't be a part of my life anymore because of these other things that I have to go and do. And now I'm more speaking for myself. Um, that is, it's like, I can't, I can't even, I, I always speak in metaphor and I can't even think of a good one. Um, so that was incredibly difficult. And then when, once we articulated that, you can't unarticulate that need, right? So then it started to be about, okay, so how, how do we do this? Because there could have, there, there is the option of, um, there are a lot of options and I'm, I'm really proud of the way that we decided that the way to end this company was, um, in line with the way we made the art, which was with purpose and intention and, um, and choice. Well, and I, I also want to jump in that I think this is not a thing I could have said uh, in the heat of it. But now that it's been like a month since we closed Arcadia and and the announcement was, you know, whatever. I also think that in a year's time, when I look back on this process, I'm also going to feel as though I had the opportunity to be renewed again by the way in which Mm -hmm. we chose to close the company. Mm -hmm. Um, We as a company, and one of the reasons that I ended up working with this group is that there's this incredible culture of empathy and listening. And we had a lot of conversation. And I feel like as much as you you seem to have pointed out the way in which we as a group can talk about the work and sort of like flow in and out of each other's conversations and work on a concept together and whatever, in this process of coming to this decision and whatnot, um, it was so important more than anything else that it was like there are seven people in this room who make up this company and we are having seven very different experiences mm-hmm. about our relationship to this company and how we feel about this decision. Mm-hmm. Because there were a lot of days where we were not in the same place. We did not have a shared story. We did yeah. not have a shared story. Mm-hmm. And I, and, and there were a number of times where, um, I, I have this uh, notebook at work that talks about like uh, how people deal with change and it's got the grief cycle in it. Mm-hmm. And I would like pull it out and it'd be like, that's where I am today. Uh-huh, like right. denial, I, like I anger, am, yeah, right. like, like <laughs> I, I am going through a grieving process right. with this choice to lose this thing in my life that is really important. And even though I made the choice actively, mm-hmm. I still have to grieve it. And part of the reason that I'm feeling tension with this person today is because I'm, I'm having a day where I'm accepting it and they're having a day where they're angry about right. it. Mm-hmm. And we can't have the same conversation right, right. now. Right. Um, right. That's really and, strange. Yeah. And it was, and so that was. Let me. I, I want to go back and sorry to interrupt you, but yeah. I just I feel like we need to be a little more um, concrete about 
what was the reason you felt like you had to close? Because you've, you've alluded yeah, sure. to it, but in but a well, little I think abstractly. It's, I think part part of what was going on is that um, both Jess and Eleanor were basically performing unpaid 20-hour-a-week part-time jobs, mm-hmm. which is from the outside and from the inside, very unsustainable. Thank you for articulating that, Nick. I think that's a hard thing for either Jess or I to kind of, because I feel like I'm complaining when right. I say it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I Yes, I think that was a big part of it. Um, recognizing that the work of sustaining the company as a business was falling on a very small group of people. Mm-hmm. It was a lot of work. Mm-hmm. Um, what were the kinds of things that you needed to be doing that were um, draining you? Grant writing and, uh, you know, bookkeeping and marketing efforts. And, and I think at some, at, I, I was, re- I, re- I was recognizing that the company was in this place that in order to reach a more sustainable level where we had an audience and a donor base that could really support the work we were doing, which to be honest, that audience base and that donor base was not going to be huge. Mm-hmm. I mean, we, we were a company that when I joined was the annual budget was like $25,000. was not very big. Right. Um, and what did you see as being the level you had to get to? Probably only like another $20,000, but that's twice as much. Right. So, you know, it's like, like when you look at other storefront companies, mm-hmm. having an operating budget, an annual operating budget of $50,000 is still really small, mm-hmm. but it was twice what we were at. Right. And so that was a huge leap to take. Mm-hmm. Um, and what, and just to explain, that was what you needed in order to be able to pay someone to be well, doing or even just to work, like, or? to like pay our actors yeah. what we thought was a reasonable amount to be paying them. What I remember, like, one, tr- this isn't the answer necessarily, but what I remember is we didn't have a great deal of audience members come out and see Bearing Miss America. Yeah, and that we felt that. was a really outstanding show and it was disheartening. And I feel like occasionally that can be the kind of wake up call where you're like, why, why after all this, why mm. did no one come and see this show? And so that causes people that lowers morale and it causes us to say, okay, what, Let's review this. What are we doing? And I feel like the answer was you guys were already doing all that work. And then we identified, we're like, okay, we need to build our board. We need to do this. We need to keep going with patron manager. We need to like learn. We, we came up with this list of things that was not happening that would equal all this other work. And everyone in the room was like, well, who is going to do this? Like how? And that had been the list for five years. And it had, and we had been able to get by without it, but we hit a point where it's like, look, we have the price. What are we going to do? Like we have to make it sustainable. Marsha, one of our other company members articulated it in this way that I, I just remember the first time she said this out loud, I was like, Yes, that, that is the core, that is the core concept of the problem, if you will, where she was like, at, she was in Bearing Miss America. And she said, you know, as an artist, to play to a room with five people in it is not a renewing experience. Right. And so if we are going to, so in, to define our business challenges, in context of our mission, mm-hmm. we are not accomplishing our mission if we can't build a business that can continue to renew our artists in that way. You know, and so yeah. that was like, that was really useful to kind of articulate like our biz- running our business is part of our mission. And right now we are not able to accomplish that. And, and then, so if, if that, when that became true or when it was true, when we articulated it, mm-hmm. then the 
I think the best opportunity that we had to fulfill our mission for the seven of us um, was to provide um, this very difficult new beginning because that's the thing about renewal, right? It doesn't promise happy ending. Mm -hmm. It promises new beginning. Mm -hmm. Um, And sometimes new beginnings are extremely difficult. And sometimes the process you have to go through to get there is extremely difficult. Mm-hmm. Um, but one of the things I'm most proud of about all of this is that we made this decision at a time that allowed Arcadia to, to really be the last show and to be present for all of us in that way mm-hmm. so that um, for all of the things that were wonderful and all of the things that were always difficult and always challenges, there there was that opportunity to to be cognizant of Either that's the last time I get to do that thing, like that's the last time I get to have the conversation um, in this incarnation with these people that crystallizes what this play is about for us right now and the role that we're going to provide the audience in this production. So there was that, which was difficult. Mm -hmm. But then there was also the, wow, that's the last time we're going to get kicked out of this space before we finish (laughs) that run. Right? Right? So it was was both of those things. We talked a lot in this process about the fact that this choice is not a failure. Mm -hmm. Um, And inside of it, that was sometimes really hard to hold on to. Um, I had a lot of days where it felt like failure. Mm -hmm. Um, But that's a thing that we as a group believe really strong. And it's interesting. I think when you invited us into the room, one of the things you asked, you said was like, well, what is, what is there to learn for other companies? And I think there's a couple of there's like a couple of thoughts I'm having sitting here that like articulating really clearly that we as a group felt like this choice was not a failure. This was a this was an active, strong choice, and it was the right one. Mm-hmm. Um, and that I think that thing I was articulating about like recognizing the problem. Mm-hmm. There were a couple of directions we could have gone at that point. And I think, you know, other companies would have made other choices. Other people with other needs would might have made other choices. Um, we chose – but I think when you reach that point where you say, wow, we have a core problem, the, you, the thing that isn't a choice at that point is you have to reinvent. Mm-hmm. You have to – Can't keep doing the same thing. Right. At yeah. that point, when you recognize a core problem, you have to at that point go – well, something has to change dramatically. Mm-hmm. And another company, another group of people at that point might have chosen to completely reinvent the way that they made work, um, you know, to go out and bring a whole bunch of new blood into the company mm-hmm. or to, you know, all decide that this was more, this was more important to them than what they do with, in that pays them and, you know, like quit their jobs and just do this or whatever. There's plenty of other ways you could do that, but the choice, but you can't just sit. You have to, right. you have to do something. Mm-hmm. And I think that we, there was some point at which we articulated, and this was a thing that was hard to keep saying, but in some ways the choice we made was in closing the company was to reinvent ourselves outside of this producing structure Mm -hmm. that when that choice came, when that moment came along where it was like, well, everything has to change now. The everything changing that we chose was, well, then everything's going to change in a way that is no longer a 501c3. 
-hmm. We are no longer, like, we may all sit at this table again together and talk about art and maybe put projects together, but it's not going to be in this incarnation. Um, Did you offer yourselves, you know, A, B, C? Okay, so here's our problem, and there are three possible solutions. We can A, disband, B, and C. Absolutely. And what were B and C? there There were conversations that several of us had um, where, you know, a lot of us, and, and this may still happen, is, is a lot of us are interested in certain types of work. Uh, for instance, work inspired by game mechanics. Um, we've used that a lot in some of our productions. Like, man, was there's game mechanics. Game mechanics, sorry. Yep. Um, so like, what are gay mechanics? Oh, wow. <laughs> what are they? <laughs> wow. You they didn't get fabulous. that from our work? <laughs> um, yeah, so uh um several of us got together and said how do we how do we reinvent this company to produce this kind of work? That was a conversation that we had mm-hmm. that we chose not to go down because if you if you reinvent New Leaf and suddenly New Leaf is only this other thing that's not, not really, really New Leaf anymore. Really, right, right. Um so while those things may continue to happen, we're still mm-hmm. collaborators, we still like working with each other, we still have a process for working with each other. Um it probably won't be the same like the whole group of seven on any one particular project. And I also think we're not I, – I, I completely plus one the, the sort of choice. We don't I – don't, I don't personally believe that th- theaters of our size are 501c3s and that taking on the burden of being a 501c3, mm-hmm. which means that you must have a mission that serves a community – um, when you're, what you're actually doing is creating work that makes you happy. Mm-hmm. That's a lie. Mm-hmm. It's a, it's a lie that you tell yourself. Um, mm-hmm. and it's a lie that, that you tell yourself so that maybe I'll get grant money. That's magical. Uh, mm-hmm. I remember that whole decision to, to go in that direction. And I, I am amazed how erroneous it was. Um, <laughs> because there's not yet, there's not yet another, model in our community. And I think that in the same way that um, the regional theater movement reinvented theater in this country uh, and the way that the the storefront theater movement reinvented theater in this city, that was 30 years ago, yo. And I think it's... (laughs) It's time to do it again. It's time to do it again. And I have nothing but respect and love and appreciation for people like, like I will say nice things about Rock Schulfer until the day I die because I think that man gave us what we have mm-hmm. in this city. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think that, um, from things I've heard him say, I think he would, he would encourage, um, people who want to take another crack at a structure. Yeah. And I think that would be totally rad if there could be another renaissance in, and what better place to start it than in this town? We have a community like none other in this country. Um, there is a support and, um, and, you know, talk about empathy and people who have each other's backs. And I mean, it's a, that word gets overused, but we have a theater community in this town. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm really proud of that and, I'm, I'm really conflicted that I'm going to put all my stuff in a truck and leave it in two weeks. Mm. Um, so I think that, yeah, it, 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 it was erroneous and we had no way of knowing that. Right. And, and hopefully someone listening to this now does. Yeah. Well, there, there were also three experiments that we did that I think are possible new models. We yes, played with a bunch you. of new, new models. Mm. There were three, three, 
yeah, three productions or semi-productions that we did that I think we were we were were actually case studies in maybe different ways of funding work. Mm-hmm. Um, so one of the things we developed because of the relationship with LPCC is this ability to move into any type of space and create stories within that space. So one of the productions we did, um, which was a Christmas show, um, Redeemers by Bilal Dardai, was written for and set in a bar. Um, so we produced that actually in our local bar, um, Rocco Rinaldi's. Um so the experience of going to that play was very aligned with eating. And I think in, in Chicago, you have sort of very aligned, um, cultural resources in theaters and in chefs. And I think you're starting to see that mm-hmm. in, um, Looking Glass did this. Mm-hmm. Looking Glass's show. And I think there's immense amounts of possibility because actually, um, uh, one of our friends, uh, Eric Ziegenhagen, who is, um, uh, works with the Driehaus Association is a huge advocate for this, um, sort of idea that you, you start seeing, uh, you're starting to see chefs sell subscriptions. <laughs> you're starting to see s- chefs sell tickets and use a ticketing model. And, and you, I think that that the, the, the restaurant industry mm-hmm. is heading in the direction of theater and theater could equally step in and make a lot of money by partnering with restaurants. Mm. It's if you can write the right story and develop the right story, it is an amazing experience for audience because their entire evening is taken care of. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, the restaurants can fill in off nights. We, we produced on a Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday night when things were really dead, they had an entire back room that we could fill up. They love us. They will, they wanted us to bring that show back again and again and again. Um, so that's one model. The other model is par- uh, again, all of these are about partnering with institutions. Mm-hmm. Um, we did a, um, benefit, uh, for, uh, preservation Chicago, uh, in association with the Glessner House Museum on the South Side because we were really great at sort of Working with weird spaces and right. telling stories, and paneling weird spaces. And, and chandeliers are no problem. <laughs> no problem, <laughs> right? Um, the Glessner House is this sort of historic um, uh, prairie-style mansion on the on the near south side, uh, and Preservation Chicago is an, a five hundred one c three that's about saving these historic buildings and drawing attention to them and supporting mm-hmm. them. So we actually produced a reading, a, a private reading for their their donors of um, the dining room set in this mansion. And it was sort of a promenade style, mm-hmm. walk through the mansion, experience it, grab a drink and um, see this story unfold around you. And the the experience that those donors walked away with was so much more magical and memorable mm-hmm. than just a sort of here's the building. Take a look at this. Like that's fascinating. Mm-hmm. But if you actually experience a story that's crafted from that theaters, that's something that theater can bring right. to those institutions. Um, and there's, you know, museums have a lot of money. So if you partner with museums, suddenly mm-hmm. things start happening. So then the, the third one is this, uh, I think it's, I think you're starting to see this evolve in the city plan that yeah. is um, coming to fruition, which is um, this partnership with the park district buildings. There's so much space available. Uh, and I know the League of Chicago Theaters is very interested in sort of exploring this opportunity. Um, like the DCA storefront arrangement that is kind of unfortunately being dismantled in some ways. Um, all of these park district buildings have availability. 
they're very easy to produce in when you know how to how to work the system. Mm-hmm. Um, they're very affordable to produce in, um, and there's one in every neighborhood. So there's all these opportunities to fill a community with theater, mm-hmm. uh, and and have. Um, I, I think the the storefront theater in particular, the the movement is um, very well suited to using those spaces. You don't always need a black box, mm-hmm. and I think when you make a connection with the community, you're starting to do the work of building that audience base. Um, the Albany Park Theater Project is an incredible example of this. They're, right. they're absolutely the most successful partnership with a park district building that you mm-hmm. could possibly imagine. Um, and what's interesting about them is that I would actually say they are a um, college prep training course first and a theater second. And so they're, they're, they're very, very mission driven. And I think that makes their theater more successful. Mm-hmm. I mean, it kind of, that's the theme of this interview that limitations on an artistic mission often lead to better work. Exactly. Or not, not just on the mission, but on every aspect of, um, mm-hmm. but, but Nick, let me press you then because you guys had a park district building. Right. So what was it that didn't go right there, what would you do differently now if you were advising someone who wanted to use one? One of the big challenges that we always had was that our park district building was in Lincoln Park, which is a very well-served community. Mm-hmm. We, our, our our community could just as easily go to Victory Gardens, right, right, just right. as easily go to the greenhouse. Um, so I think if we had to do it again, we would think about what community we were trying to connect with. Mm-hmm. Uh, for instance, I think right now Lincoln Square is pretty underserved. Mm-hmm. Um, there's many neighborhoods in town that are very underserved. Mm-hmm. Um, so and we're getting to microbrewery kind of, you know, exactly. teeny tiny um, definition of it. It's not Chicago theater. This is Albany Park theater. This is well, Lincoln if Square you, if you th- And this is the other thing that theaters need to do is they need to think about who their audience is and how – they live their lives. Mm-hmm. Um, most of the people how in the sh- audience live their how lives. the audience lives their lives. Mm-hmm. How do they select what they do for the evening? Mm-hmm. Um, if you have a next door neighborhood theater, you're going to go to it a lot. Mm-hmm. You know, yes, you may periodically go to the Goodman because, like, oh, I'm going to see that's that's the kind of thing that I want to see mm-hmm. as a special a treat. Mm-hmm. But you can actually fill people's daily lives with theater and mm-hmm. story mm-hmm. by being their neighborhood theater. Right. Um, so there's, there's an, there's an untapped, um, an, an, an unserved market there. Yeah. I think it's challenging to answer the question of, um, reconciling isn't exactly the word, but connecting the kind of work the company is excited in doing with the kind of work we perceive our audience wants to see or would be excited by. And so there was kind of, cause like our mission isn't, um, about serving the Lincoln Park community per se. Right. So I, I always found those conversations challenging about, well, we're ultimately we're doing work that we're excited by. But one of the things that excited us was sort of trying to get a vibe from the community, from the communities we live in or, you know, spend a lot of time in and get vibes from them about like, what are the questions people seem to be asking? Like, what are the things people seem concerned about? And then kind of focus our work on, on answering some of those questions. But it doesn't always directly relate to the neighborhood that your theater is actually situated in. So I th- think that's a really 
that's a tough question for for a lot of companies, I think, to answer. I think in, in Arcadia, we actually finally got really good at talking with our audience. And that's mm-hmm. actually one of the reasons why we introduced the device of tea in the lobby. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it actually helped us as company members really have a lot of conversations with audience members. Mm-hmm. There's suddenly this opportunity to to mill about and talk with them about where they're coming from and how they heard about the show. And that's very important work. Um, mm-hmm. one, of the, one of the most profound audience development conversations I had was actually with, just mentioned earlier, Ruck Schelfer, who's the, right. the managing director of the Goodman, um, who is our neighbor. Mm-hmm. He is literally next door <laughs> to the Lincoln Park Cultural Center. So we had an audience, a, a meeting with him once, and we were sort of dealing, grappling with this problem before Eleanor came on board. And um, he just said, you know, you need to go into the condo buildings next door and just hand out postcards. Mm-hmm. Uh, and what I what I gleaned from that is that, like, those people just want to walk out their door and have a bite to eat and then see a show. Right. right. It's so simple. And we overcomplicate it and overcomplicate it and overcomplicate it. Mm-hmm. Um, because I think we're afraid or resentful of talking to the audience in a lot of the cases. And you, you can't be that way. You, if you're going to be a theater, the audience is a key player in how that works. Right. Um, and you need to connect with an audience that you want to connect with. And yet, I mean, obviously this is the tension. You don't want to be, you know, like the way Disney produces theater with focus groups and you right. know, you can't pander to such an extent that you're no longer speaking as an artist. You're right. just creating a product. Absolutely. And that is a very hard, and I think you're probably right that in general artists and maybe even particularly young artists are so sort of defiantly protecting their individual voice and expression that they lose track of the fact that in fact there is, as you say it, as mm-hmm. you said, um, Michelle, there's no, there's no fun in doing your show for five people, so that's actually critical to being having an expression, someone to land it for to land on, and yet not compromising. It's a totally complex problem, yeah. and it's 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 something that faces every single storefront theater. The first six years that you're producing, you're developing your voice. Right. You're you don't know how to articulate yourself to an audience yet. Right. And and you're focused on building that process, and you must do that. Right. It's you have to make that process work, be consistent, be consistently great. And you need to start being able to predict, you know, I'm going to do these things and I'm going to tell this story and I'm choosing this play to produce. And that's going to have this effect. Mm-hmm. Um, that's going to have this outcome. In defining who we are or whatever. Yeah, exactly. And then then your work is not done right. <laughs> when that is complete. Then you have the hard step of saying, now I need to find who cares about this with me. Yeah. And I think, oh. Yeah, I was just going to say, that's a challenging tension, I think, that exists throughout the life of the company, mm-hmm. any company, is the tension between doing work that you find meaningful as a company and doing work that your audience cares about, too, and trying to right. balance that constantly. And I just think it's a an ongoing balancing act. And there's just luck involved. There are artists who just happen to be interested in stuff that also happens to be fashionable or part of the zeitgeist, and isn't that great for them? And then there are artists whose own preoccupations actually aren't shared by a very big audience. And and then what do you do? Do you just accept that you have a small audience? <laughs> yeah. Or do you change what you, you know, that's... I think that's a personal choice. Yeah. I think you, I think everybody faces that choice and everybody has to make that choice for themselves. Yeah, yeah. Well, I just want to thank all four of you for um, joining me to talk about this. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us. Thanks very much. Mm -hmm.